morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be in Acts chapter 6, starting verse 1 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 914. Again, it's Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. You can find it on the, in the Pew Bible on page 914. If you would, please stand with me as we read, starting in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, good to meet you guys. Uh, yes, especially for some of you who uh, just started coming this summer. I, I am going to hopefully meet you for the first time today. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, as was prayed earlier, uh, and as mentioned, my family and I, we've been on sabbatical for this whole summer. So uh, again, if you're just showing up to Houston, showing up to our church this summer. I, I, I hope you introduce yourself to me um, later after this service. Uh, we, again, are so thankful for the opportunity that, that you guys gave us as a church uh, to take some time off and to, to be able to travel. And uh, we look forward to sharing some of those uh, stories and some of the memories uh, that, that we were able to forge. So, again, thank you uh, so much for that opportunity. And I'm excited to be home, to be at my church home, and to be able to minister to you this morning. So let me pray for us to begin. Father, thank you so very much for your word as it was just read. And now we pray by the power of your spirit that you will take the preaching of that word and that you would use it to minister deeply to each and every one of us. May you perform a work that only you can do in making dead hearts alive, in healing broken hearts, and in encouraging and strengthening weary hearts for the task that you have set before us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new to our church, you should know that our normal practice here is to just preach through books of the Bible. And so we just finished this summer a series through the book of Philippians. And what we typically do is just to jump back and forth between New and Old Testament books um, as we go through them. And the, the reason is because... We want the steady staple diet that you're being fed from this pulpit to be driven by God's agenda uh, and not ours. 
by God's priority and not ours. Because if we just preach through his, um, if we just preach through his word, just going book by book, chapter by chapter, then we are more than likely to address issues and topics that are going to reflect his agenda and his priorities. Issues and topics that we'd probably overlook if we were just simply picking and choosing the topics that interest us. So that's why we do what we typically do. But having said that, on occasion, we do craft a series that is more topical in nature, meaning that there's this overarching topic that binds all of the, the sermons in that series together. And we still try to do our best to faithfully preach that particular text in its proper context. But what we try to do is to tie it all back to that broader topic. And so for this coming fall, we're going to be doing a sermon series on the vision of our church. And we think that's going to be a great introduction for those of you who are new to HCC. But also, it's going to be a great reminder for members here who have heard a lot about this over the years and officially affirmed this church vision back in April of last year, if you guys remember. So we've got seven messages lined up to remind you about what that vision is and um, seven texts that we're going to preach that touch on various components of that vision. Now, one aspect of the vision does involve facility renovation and facility expansion. And in the weeks and months to come, you're going to hear a lot about some big plans that we have in store and how you can be able to be a part of that and support that. And so what we're going to try to do in this series within each of the sermons is to make that connection between the overall church vision and how it particularly relates to this upcoming building project you're going to hear more about. So that's what we're, where we're going. That's what we're going to be doing in this sermon series for the next two months. Now, now, some of you are probably thinking, wow, that's great. We're going to talk about the vision of the church. What in the world is the vision of the church? And you're probably newer to the church or you just forgot uh, what you voted on last April. Uh, and so here it is. If you want to look in your uh, sermon uh, outline in your bulletin, I actually printed it there for you so that you can be able to read it yourself. But let me read it out loud. It says, HCC seeks to be an urban Chinese heritage church in central Houston that reaches all those in our lives, Chinese or otherwise, through equipping, sending, and planting. Now, in today's introductory message, I like to focus on the identity of our church and on what it means to call ourselves a Chinese heritage church. Next week, what I hope to do is to talk more about our, lo our unique location and what it means to be an urban church in central Houston. And in the following weeks, we're going to focus on the impact that we hope that our church can have on our community, our city, and beyond. Now, you know, throughout the whole vision casting process that we've been on, I I've had conversations with people about the distinction between this whole new vision statement that we've got and our existing church's mission statement to make God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. And people are wondering if this new thing we have is meant to replace the mission statement. So now that we've got this new vision statement, are we still going to be using the mission statement? And that's an understandable question and an understandable confusion because those terms are often conflated, mission and vision, uh, often used synonymously. And so I understand why it might seem like we're just replacing one for the other. But in our usage, we're actually keeping those two terms distinct. 
And so that means we are still keeping, we are still cherishing our existing mission statement. And we think that this new vision statement is going to serve just as a good supplement as it does accomplish a bit of a different purpose. So when we speak of our mission statement, that's trying to address what we as a church are here for. Why do we congregate as a body of believers? Like, why do we commit ourselves as fellow members, uh, fellow church members within this particular local assembly? Why do we exist? That's the question it's trying to answer. And the answer is to make God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. That is the underlying reason why we do all that we do as a church. That's our mission. But now we ask, what will we look like if we faithfully pursued that mission of making those kinds of disciples for Jesus? What do we envision our church to look like in the years to come as we live out this mission? Well, we envision ourselves to be an urban Chinese heritage church in central Houston that reaches all those in our lives, Chinese or otherwise, through equipping, sending, and planting. Our existing mission statement only speaks of what we do as a church. This new vision statement expresses what we hope to be as a church. And that's the distinction we're making. And we think that they're going to supplement and work well with each other. So now let's get into the heart of today's message. What I want to first do is to provide you a definition of a Chinese heritage church, because that might be a term you're unfamiliar with. Uh, Second, I want to address the unique challenges faced by all Chinese heritage churches by uh, looking at a similar kind of church in Acts chapter 6. And lastly, I want to paint a hopeful vision for the future of Chinese heritage churches just like ours. So let's start by laying out a definition of what we mean when we talk about being a Chinese heritage church. Because you're probably used to the term Chinese church, and so you might be wondering, what's the point of throwing more words into that description? Why include the word heritage? What are we trying to communicate when we describe HCC as a Chinese heritage church? Well, it's pretty straightforward, really. We mean this church is and always will be a church with a Chinese heritage. No matter if decades from now, Future generations of this church have, have altered the church's vision in order to fit their particular context in the future to the point that ministry to the Chinese diaspora in central Houston might no longer be a, a prominent feature anymore. Even so, this will still be a church with a Chinese heritage, and it could be appropriately described in those future days as still a Chinese heritage church. Let me give you an example from the church that I attended when I was in college up in Austin. So today, that church that I used to go to is called Austin Oaks Church. Back when I worshipped there, it was called First Evangelical Free Church. Now, it, went, it, it changed that name to First Evangelical, Evangelical Free Church back in 1925. Um, but prior to 1925... Since its inception in 1892, it was called Swedish Evangelical Church, and all of their services were conducted in Swedish. 
And so it was, and you could say it still is, a Swedish heritage church, a church with a Swedish heritage. Now, since there's no longer a sizable Swedish diaspora in Austin, and, and diaspora just means um, a people uh, dispersed or dislocated from their homeland for whatever reason. And so there, there is no sizable Swedish diaspora in Austin because, of course, Swedish immigration patterns have significantly dwindled over the past hundred years here in America and in Texas in particular. So I doubt Austin Oaks Church would find much benefit in promoting themselves as a Swedish heritage church. They probably wouldn't describe themselves that way if they were talking to a newcomer. But if they were to ever celebrate their church's history, then it would be true and honoring to speak highly of their Swedish heritage and the ministry that God accomplished through them in the past in reaching the Swedish community for Jesus. That would be the story of a Swedish heritage church. And so friends, I, I, I hope you can begin to see the obvious comparisons between a church like that and our church in our context. So when we describe ourselves as a Chinese heritage church, we mean to communicate that we are a church with a Chinese heritage, that all of our founders back in 1975 were immigrants of Chinese descent, and they had an expressed desire to reach for Christ the first generation Chinese, Chinese diaspora found in our city. A community, by the way, that continues to grow over the past 47 years. And because of that, because there still is a significant and sizable first generation Chinese diaspora here in Houston, we still have and we still need a healthy, we need healthy Chinese congregations to do the gospel work that they are uniquely equipped and called to do. And that is why Describing ourselves as a Chinese heritage church is fitting and helpful because it not only honors our past heritage, it accurately describes our present ministry. But what it also does is that it leaves open our future. Because who knows what the future holds for our church? We don't know. We don't know what God's going to do in years down the line. Who knows what impact social political forces outside of our control might have on future immigration patterns of Chinese people to the U.S. Decades from now, who knows if Chinese ministry will still be a prominent feature of this church. And who knows whether it will still be helpful to describe ourselves as a Chinese heritage church. Because maybe one day future members and leaders of this church will find themselves in a, a very similar situation as Austin Oaks Church. And maybe for the sake of their present mission and their present ministry, they may no longer prominently feature the Chinese heritage of this church. And if that happens, okay, that's fine. That's what they're doing. That's what they believe God's calling them to do way down in the future. But I truly do hope that they will still celebrate and that they will still speak highly of our church's Chinese heritage that, of course, roots back to 1975 and a faithful group of UH grad students who were first-generation immigrants of Chinese descent. And so that's why, my friends, I, I think this term, Chinese Heritage Church, can be helpful in conversations with people today when you're talking about our church, introducing them to our church, because it properly honors our heritage in the past, it accurately describes an important aspect of our ministry in the present, but it leaves things open for the future. 
And that's why our vision statement says that we aim to reach for Christ all those in our lives, Chinese or otherwise. Because that's one way for us to acknowledge and to affirm those here who are with us today, who are not of Chinese descent, but who are equally committed to making God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. And that particular uh, way of, of phrasing our vision statement is reminding us and encouraging us to keep a broad outlook in our outreach to the larger community around us. Now, I know some have asked, uh, as we've been going through these discussions, some have asked me if I'm suggesting that we change our name to Houston Chinese Heritage Church. And I'm always like, no, 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 please, please don't do that. We do not need to make Chinese church acronyms even longer. I mean, we have enough CCCCCCs. You know, don't, don't add any more letters to the mix. Or it's just fine. But if the term Chinese Heritage Church becomes just more normative in the way that we speak and describe and introduce our church and, and churches like ours, then I do hope it, it intrigues people who aren't familiar with our churches and gets them to ask, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the word heritage? And I hope that just opens up a door for us to talk about our history, our heritage, about the ministries that are presently going on, and about the future opportunities that lay before us. And so if this kind of language, if, this kind of, if these kind of categories help you to describe the history of our church, the identity of our church, and the vision of the kind of church we hope to be in this city, if that helps you, then great. Utilize the term. I hope it becomes more common in the way you describe us. But if it confuses you, if it confuses other people, well, then just forget about it. You don't need to use the term. Terms like Chinese Heritage Church are only helpful if they actually help. And so I just commend it to you, and I do hope it helps you in describing and in introducing our church to others. Okay, now friends, let's, let's transition and let's talk about some of the common challenges that are faced by Chinese heritage churches. And let's finally look at Acts chapter 6. So I hope you have the Bible opened in front of you and you're following along with me in Acts 6. Normally we just jump right into the text. There's not all this, you know, other introductory uh, material. But with this particular topic, I felt like we needed to lay out some groundwork. But now we're ready to get into the text. Now, let me give you some, uh, some background. Acts, if you're not familiar with the book, is a book all about the early years of the church, starting with the church in Jerusalem. So in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises his, his apostles that they will, quote, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the rest of the book shows how that unfolds. First in Jerusalem, that would be chapters 2 to 7, is all about Jerusalem. And then throughout Judea and Samaria, that's the region around Jerusalem. And that's found in chapters 8 to 12. And then all the way to the end of the known earth, to the ends of the Roman Empire back then. And that would be chapters 13 all the way to the end to 28. So that... Chapter 1, verse 8 is kind of like the table of contents for the rest of the book. So we're in chapter 6 today, and so that means our focus is still on the church in Jerusalem. Now, in chapters 2 to 4, 
we read about the apostles powerfully preaching the gospel accompanied by signs and wonders, and we read about these mass conversions of people coming to Christ in the thousands. But of course, with increased numbers comes increased attention from the religious authorities. And so in chapters 4 to 7, the church in Jerusalem gets hit hard by persecution. There are many threats made against them um, by the Jewish high court, known as the Sanhedrin. And on a couple of occasions, they do end up arresting the apostles, uh, throwing them in prison, and beating them up before finally letting them go. Now, we're told in the text that these confrontations were instigated by human actors like the, the high priest or the Sadducees, a particular uh, powerful group within the Sanhedrin. But at the same time, there are hints that behind the scenes, darker forces are at work. You know, Satan almost goes unnamed throughout chapters 4 to 7, but there is this one place in chapter 5, if you want to look there with me, where the veil is slightly lifted and you get a glimpse of him. So look in chapter 5, verse 4. This is where Peter, the apostle, is speaking to a man named Ananias, a man in the Jerusalem church who was driven by greed. And he says to him in verse 4, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And that right there is a small peak behind the veil. That is a glimpse of the real warfare waging between the principal actors of Satan and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5 alone, in this one chapter, you get a good idea of Satan's strategy for how he plans on destroying the church. He'll try to corrupt it morally, suppress it externally, or divide it internally. Because you look with me, just look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, you see Satan tries to morally corrupt the Jerusalem church through the greed of its members. But it doesn't work. And the church continues to keep growing in verses 17, uh, verses 12 to 16. You see there, a section marked off by the church continues to grow. Now, so then in verses 17 all the way to verse 41, we see Satan switch strategies, and now he tries to, to um, externally suppress the church through physical threats, through religious persecution. But again, it doesn't work. And the gospel, we're told at the end of the chapter, in verse 42, continues to ring forth in the city from house to house. The gospel is going out and disciples are being made. So now, at the start of our chapter, in chapter 6, Satan changes up his strategy once more, and now he tries to internally divide the church. In verse 1, we read about a brewing controversy between two groups found within the Jerusalem church. Let me read verse 1 again. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenists' widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so we have these two groups in the same church. You have the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, you need to understand that they were all converted Jews. They are Jewish Christians. But there are two kinds of Jewish Christians in the early church. First, you had the Hellenists. 
believers, uh, th th these are Hellenist believers of Jewish descent. So religiously, they're now Christians. Uh, ethnically, they're still Jewish. But culturally, and this is key, culturally, they are Hellenists, meaning that they identify more with Greek culture because they are the ones who likely grew up in the diaspora, the Jewish community that was displaced outside of Palestine. And so they grow, grew up speaking Greek, and they were, of course, much more comfortable navigating Greek culture, which was the larger culture around them. And then there was another group. There were the Hebraic believers of Jewish descent. These are the native Palestinian Jews who grew up, probably even in Jerusalem, grew up speaking Aramaic. Uh, they were much less familiar with and much less comfortable engaging with Greek culture. Not only was there a language barrier, there was also a thick cultural barrier that they faced. So understandably, the Hebraic Jews were more focused on reaching Jews who were more like them, that is, Aramaic-speaking, and who were also steeped in Jewish culture. Now, friends, does that sound at all familiar to you? Two groups of Christians found in the same church, dealing with language and cultural barriers, and at the same time having a different focus and a different competency in reaching lost people of two different cultures. Are we talking about the Acts 6 church or the Chinese Heritage Church? I'm, I'm not sure. Which, do you see how how similar we are here? What I really want you to see is just how multicultural our church is. Now, of course, it wouldn't be accurate to describe us as multi-ethnic. That's, of course, not to say that we don't warmly welcome and seek to have deep fellowship with those of various other ethnicities, but just based on proportions right now, well, we're not multi-ethnic but we certainly are multicultural. There's the obvious cultural differences between the Chinese and the English congregations. I mean, you've got first-generation immigrant culture, which, of course, is different than the more westernized culture of the second generation, the children of immigrants, and the third generation, the children of the children of immigrants, and, and so on and so forth. And even just if you're just looking at a snapshot of the Chinese side alone, there are cultural differences between Chinese who are from Taiwan or from Hong Kong or from mainland China or from other diaspora communities in places like Singapore or Malaysia, Indonesia. Sure, they're all ethnically the same, but if you get to know them, you'll realize they are culturally different. So my whole point is that it is naive to look at a Chinese heritage church like ours and to suggest that we're lacking in diversity. Because that would assume a very narrow definition of diversity that only considers ethnicity. But that would mean overlooking things like generational diversity between young and old, linguistic diversity between the various languages and dialects that are found here, and of course, the cultural diversity found in a church like ours. And so what that therefore means is that the same challenges facing the multicultural Acts 6 church 
are the same challenges, friends, that we're going to have to deal with. We're going to have to recognize. Because if we're not careful, our cultural differences could easily sow distrust between the different groups in our church. And that could, of course, lead to division and discord. And, of course, that's what was happening in the Jerusalem church in the beginning of Acts 6. We're told there that the widows among the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. There was a mercy ministry going on for widows, and the Hellenist widows were being overlooked. It's likely because the Hellenists were the minority group in the church, and they lacked representation in the leadership of the early church. And so without positions of leadership available for them, they had a, a difficult time voicing the needs of their own widows. So in light of that, in light of their complaints about that, what did the leadership of the church do? The leadership that consisted of the apostles who were all Hebraic Jews. What did they do when they heard the complaints? Well, it's important to note that they didn't feel threatened by the complaints of the Hellenists. They didn't respond by grasping even tighter to the reins of control and power in the church. No, you see in the text that those in the majority freely released power and they delegated responsibility to those in the minority group. Because based on the names that we find in verse 5, we can tell that these seven men that they ended up choosing who were given leadership, they were of the Hellenists. They were of that minority group. So we're told that the 12 apostles asked the church to choose, quote, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And these men would now be responsible to oversee the church's ministry, a mercy ministry to the widows, some of the poorest and neediest among them, along with the orphans. And that arrangement allowed the apostles to go and dedicate themselves to the ministry of word and prayer. And as a result, we're told in verse 5 that the entire church was pleased with that arrangement. Unity was maintained. Tensions were relieved. Trust was regained. And friends, this kind of unity in diversity, evident in the way that Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews were now leading the church together. They were sharing resources with one another. That was beautiful, not only to the church, but we're told it was beautiful to the, in the eyes of the watching world. Because if you look in verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests the Jewish priests in the city became obedient to the faith. The church's evangelism was effective because the gospel was not only being powerfully preached, it was being beautifully lived out in their life together. They could now explain to the watching world that the unity that's bridging the cultural gap between them really just illustrates the greater unity that Jesus established when he died to bridge the spiritual separation that's found between a holy God and unholy sinners. In other words, if you're so impressed when you see two groups unified as one body in spite of their deep differences, 
Well, then get ready to be blown away when you finally encounter a God who became one with his people in spite of their sin, in spite of the deep differences between them. The Son of God suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, reconciling us to the Father through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Friends, if any one of you out there have yet to experience that reconciliation with God, to be brought back to God, unified with God, the invitation stands for you. Go to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can bridge that separation that you, that you feel between you and God. What you feel is real. There is a true gap between you and God because of your sins. And Jesus is the one who can bridge it. And that, that gospel, that message was able to be communicated with words, but lived out in community in the Jerusalem church. That's why they grew. That's why the gospel rang forth among them. Friends, that's what a multicultural church can do for the cause of Christ. We can, we can, of course, work hard to resist the tendency towards distrust and division. That's, that's naturally going to accompany a church when you have a, a, a multicultural mix. So we have to resist that. And we do that by dying to self, by putting the interests of the other group ahead of your own. We do that by releasing control, sharing leadership, and demonstrating to the watching world the unifying power of the gospel. Friends, it's because of Acts chapter 6, because of the way that it demonstrates the kingdom advancing potential of multicultural churches, that is why I remain hopeful when I think about the future of the Chinese Heritage Church. So let me share that hope with you. I want to conclude by sharing some hopefulness for the Chinese Heritage Church, for ours in particular. Now, I've been at this church uh, since the early 90s, uh, when I was in the youth, youth group. Uh, I've, I've served on staff in this church for over 15 years now in two different capacities. And I have seen firsthand the cultural differences, and I have experienced the cultural barriers on various occasions and in various forms. But at the same time, I've seen the intentional efforts on the part of leaders to bridge those gaps to lower those barriers. I see parallels in the sacrificial steps that were taken by the Hebraic Jews and similar kinds of steps taken by Chinese side leaders over the many years of our church. Like the Hebraic Jews in the Jerusalem church, our Chinese side leaders, past and present, they never closed their ears when English side members complained about feeling overlooked or about feeling disenfranchised. They didn't grasp tighter to their power and control over the church. No, over the years, I've seen it, I've experienced it, the Chinese side has continually welcomed English side members into leadership, sharing power, delegating responsibility. And of course, that came with a cost to the Chinese side. One of the biggest costs being that they had to make the intentional choice to make English the default language in our staff and in our council meetings. And that is a sacrifice for our Chinese side leaders who now have to discuss complex and difficult matters in a second language, not their own heart language. 
That's a sacrifice that they were willing to make in order to empower us in this congregation, to welcome us into leadership in this church. And I think that's a sacrifice that many of us fail to realize, fail to appreciate how much they've sacrificed for us. And because of those efforts, and of course, ultimately because of God's grace, we are a Chinese heritage church with healthy, fully staffed Chinese and English congregations that are engaged in vibrant, gospel-centered ministry in this city. But God's word continues to increase. Disciples continue to multiply, just like the Acts 6 church. The Chinese and English congregations are committed to reaching for Christ, all those whom God has placed in our lives. Now, of course, we might conduct our ministry using different languages. We might employ different ministry tactics, and, and we might focus our efforts on different communities of lost people in our city. But in the end, we are one body, one family, committed to the same mission of making God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations. And so because I've seen this kind of Acts 6 type of unity and teamwork unfolding in our multicultural context, that's why I remain hopeful for the future of our Chinese Heritage Church. And so with that future in view, thinking about where God is leading us, we as leaders have been praying and planning over the last few years on how to expand and to renovate our facilities on this plot of land that God has entrusted to us. You know, in, in the past, us leaders have batted around the idea of maybe one day relocating our, our church, mostly joking, but sometimes we've had some serious conversations, you know, you know, just thinking about when, man, just how much could we get for this property? I mean, we are in some prime real estate here, and how much more land, how much more space could we purchase if we just moved further out into the suburbs? But after our last round of vision casting, it became clear that the Lord is calling us to stay put. He put us here, though it's very limited in size, though we're locked in in many ways, but he put us here in this strategic location for gospel ministry. We're in close proximity to key institutions like the Medical Center, Rice University, University of Houston, the downtown core, all of which are huge draws for Chinese immigrants and also for transplants to Houston from all over the nation from a variety of backgrounds. And we are the only Chinese heritage church in central Houston within the inner loop, and of course we're just right outside the inner loop, that has a stable, healthy English congregation. Yeah, there are some other Chinese churches, but they don't have English congregations at least here in central Houston. And we're not talking about our, our sister churches that we know further out in the suburbs. So we have a unique role here to play and a valuable resource to steward for God. And of course, that re, out of those resources includes this land that we have and, and this facility that we're in. And so that's why we've got this, this building project coming on the horizon. In the weeks to come, you're going to hear about our plans to expand our ministry space with new construction and also to renovate this existing space. And I, I truly believe you're going to like it. You're going to be excited about what you hear. But friends, before you hear all those plans, let me, let me just remind all of us. I, I think you already know this, but let me just remind you that the church is not a place. It's not a building. It's the people. It's the redeemed people in Christ. 
So you can have a new building, old building, or no building, and you can still be the church. A building is not essential. But if you talk to pastors and you talk to church planners, they'll tell you that a building sure is helpful. Not essential, but man, is it helpful. And so I think we take, often take for granted that we have a place of our own where we can gather every week. We are beneficiaries of a building that has done its job over the last four decades. And what we hope to accomplish in this building project is to faithfully steward what God has given to us in order that we might leave a legacy for future generations to continue the good gospel work of this Chinese heritage church. Our vision is that in the next four decades and beyond, the gospel, we hope and pray, will continue to be faithfully proclaimed here at the corner of South Main and West Belfort. That God-loving, compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ will continue to be made here and sent out from here across our nation to the ends of the earth. That's our vision. And pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the work that has gone for a few number of years into developing this vision as a church. We thank you for all the leaders involved in that. And now as we continue to um, lay out that vision and we talk about this particular building project, Lord, we pray that you would give us a shared outlook on where, what you have done for us in Christ, what you have done for us in our history through past leaders and members and their faithful contribution. May we be grateful, humbled, and now empowered and energized for the work ahead of us. All for your glory and for the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name.